Ah, uh, yes. Your famous analogies. They're not that famous, but... <laughs> uh, hopefully they're at least okay. Yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like simplicity and I like it to be very couples. clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples. Oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking women. Right, but that's not accurate. You have weird taste. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly, if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating, almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now, here's the show. Hey, John. Hey, Mike. What's on your mind this week? So I was thinking about our earlier conversation, as you do, as, as I do, around creative things and the significance of the idea and the execution in the process. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I've kind of boiled it down a little bit, and I just wanted to maybe restate it somewhat so that it's clearer. Okay. And as I often do, I've kind of thought about an analogy around it. Ah, uh, yes, your famous analogies. They're not that famous, but... <laughs> uh, hopefully they're at least okay. Yeah. But, yeah, I think when we talked about it before, we kind of got bogged down in trying to distinguish between how to improve your execution and how to improve your process. And it kind of got blurry because both of them result in better execution. Right. And so to just articulate this slightly clearer, when I think about trying to improve your execution... I think about it as like simply continuing to practice. All right. So in the basketball analogy, you just shoot and you shoot and you shoot and you shoot. And hopefully through the process of just doing the thing over and over again, you will get better. Mm -hmm. And you look at what you did badly and you take that feedback and you try to improve. But if you're trying to refine your process, you're not practicing. You're looking at how you practice. You're looking at when you do it, how long you do it, right? what motions are involved, what you ate before, whatever else. And you're trying to optimize all of that stuff outside of the actual practicing. Mm. And my debate with myself about this whole thing was the fact that working on your, your process, working on all of the structures and things that you're doing around practicing automatically takes away time from actually practicing and actually practicing is what allows you to produce things and what allows you to kind of move forward in a lot of ways and so even though you might get a lot more long-term results from optimizing your process it's hard to focus on that and and to take time away from the here and now right it's like investing in the long term and Mm -hmm. not getting the benefits immediately and the analogy that i thought around this was that i feel like execution like practicing with execution is kind of like experimentation. Okay. And trying to work on your process is kind of like engineering. So in the context of scientific... Uh, scientific. No, I prefer scientific. Let's stick with that one. Scientific, yeah. Okay, okay. In the concept or in the... Uh, Spirit. In the context of scientific <laughs> exploration... <laughs> When a science is new and when people don't know answers, you have experimentation and observation to try to figure things out. Once you've figured things out, then you can apply what has been learned systematically through engineering. And Mm. so every time somebody wants to build a building, they don't have to rediscover all the physics and experiment with what building will work. They can just use the principles that have been established and the processes that have been established in order to build it. And this is kind of how I was thinking about 
this with skill development. Right. Once you have enough knowledge around the area, you can kind of put together a process effectively. But when you're new to something, you really need to just experiment over and over again to see mm. what works because you don't have enough of that grounding and knowledge to put it together effectively. Because after our conversation, I found myself dwelling on it and thinking about the fact that, you know, I don't have any good way to evaluate whether or not a process is good. And I've never really mm. thought about it because it's always been based upon how effective is your execution? Is your execution improving? But if you're right. thinking about a long-term plan that should last for, you know, let's say two or three years, mm -hmm. and you're not supposed to see results for a year and a half, well, how do you know for that year and a half if it's going well? You have to have some next level way to evaluate that structure. Right. And I don't have much of that. But I think in order to be able to evaluate your processes, you have to have enough experience and knowledge in mm. the skill or in the area. And then you can start to see leading indicators. Right. For instance, if you were a teacher in a high school or something, let's say you're teaching history. Right. Your first year, you're not going to really know as you go through, except for how well the students are actually doing up to that point. You're not going to know how well they're going to do at the end of the year. But once you've been doing it for 10 years, you'll start to see all these little hints and clues and be like, oh, students are falling behind. Oh, they're losing interest. Oh, whatever. All right. So even if their results aren't, you know, not doing very well, you'll see uh. the problem signs, I guess, and be able to change the structures of your teaching in order to propel them forward somewhat. Yeah, it makes sense. I kind of do the same thing in pool. Hmm. There's shots, you know, yeah. like whether it's like a bank shot or a cut of some sort that I'm trying to do that I've failed at in practice, like in a game, right? Because that's the only time that I really try new things is when I'm playing against other people. And obviously it doesn't work out for me very often. Yeah, sure. But generally, maybe once a month, I'll go and I'll play by myself at a pool hall for like mm -hmm. an hour or so. Mm -hmm. And I'll think about some of the shots that I thought I would be able to do successfully. And I was completely off. If I wanted mm -hmm. to go left and okay. it went right, I sit there and I hit the ball against the felt over and over again until it starts going in the direction that I want it to go into. And then I'll grab an objective ball and I'll use the cue ball. And then I'll start hitting the ball until the, the objective ball starts doing what I wanted to do. Okay. Yeah. You know, after trying it in a game and realizing that whatever I thought was going to happen didn't happen at all. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And see, that's, that is the kind of ideal way to practice in a lot of senses. That you found what you suck at. And then you just worked mm. on the thing that you sucked at until you stopped sucking at it. Yeah. Because I think a lot of times people in most of their skills, they lean toward the things that they're already good at because they're already good at them. They enjoy doing them. And the mm. things that they're really bad at get neglected. Right. And, you know, I'm a pretty sore loser, John. That's true. Especially in pool. Because I think I've gotten to the point where I feel good. So when I miss a shot or make a mistake... I take it really hard and I spend a lot of time going, what did I do wrong? How can I do it better? Is there some way to improve my shot? And then slowly, you know, my margin of error whittles down to the point where I feel confident making that shot 100%. Yeah. So I, the way you explained it makes a lot of sense to me, especially with regards to experimentation and then the process of engineering, having the concepts and then taking yeah. what you already know and applying it. Right. Well, and I think I think this is... Useful. And it's funny because one of the original reasons that I wanted to talk about it that I didn't actually remember to bring up in our last conversation, as is always the case, mm -hmm. you always forget the core reason that you brought something up. But I think most people in most situations, mm -hmm. when they're learning new things, 
don't ever move past experimentation. They don't ever move past just simplistic practice to think about the structures around their practice, around the mm. context of where are you doing it, when are you doing it, what are you using, what other things are on your mind, what did you do before, are you focusing on the things that you're already good at, are you focusing on the things that you're poor at, how mm -hmm. do you structure all that, right? Like, I don't think most people in school, most people in their work, most people in any situation in life ever get to the point where they're thinking at that level. They're mostly mm. focused on the simpler just practice, just do more of it. Yeah. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I do think that it's useful to understand that if you're going to be really good, like I, I am very kind of focused on this idea of long-term skill development to really mm -hmm. develop expertise. And if you're going to be really good at something, you're going to have to think about, at a, at a certain point, you kind of plateau with that simplistic practice. Right. And you need to think about how do I improve what I'm doing to another level? And mm. that's by systematizing how right. you're going about improving. So I neglected to bring that up. I think I've mentioned that in kind of passing on in other occasions. I'm sure you have. So while it might not be ideal at the start, and one of the issues that I've run into, like with the video editing that we talked about and things like that, is that mm -hmm. when you've figured out that something is effective in a long scale, you always want to kind of apply it. Mm -hmm. But I'm starting to understand that even though something might work well once you've been doing something for six months, or nine months, it might not be very applicable in the first month or two that you're learning something. And right. so figuring out where it should be placed and how everything has its place is an important component of all of this. Yeah, all right. Last week, we discussed Simon Bolivar. Yeah, Simon Bolivar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking about his several unsuccessful and finally successful attempts at revolution and yeah. talked about the U.S. and their very successful attempt at revolution, Haiti's revolution. So we're talking a lot about revolution in general. And I thought it'd be fun to hypothetically talk about what we would do in a revolution. If it's okay. brewing, you're in a situation, you're a wealthy upper middle class individual in this colony that's been around for X number of years. That country that colonized it is keeping you down even though they don't live here and they're all, all up in your business and all up in all your colleagues' business and you're tired of it. You need some independence from these fools. <laughs> all right. Yeah, so, I'm John, I want to talk about how we would go about starting a revolution. Okay. So, to start off, it's a hypothetical, right? So, we need to yeah. get some ground rules under us. Okay. Are we talking about 18th century? Are we talking about now? Mm. What's the kind of situation here? Let's, for the sake of simplicity, put it in the 1800s. Okay. We're just riding the wave of revolution all across the world. All right. All right. Let's say we're some country like the US or like South America, some country in South America, hmm. but not necessarily either of those countries. Well, South America is not a country, but that's Oh, okay. right. That's why I said like Venezuela, like one of those countries. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we're tired of the oppressive regime weighing on us. Hmm. So I think there are a couple of keys to victory. Okay. I mean, you can see this historically. No, that's cheating, John. Well, you have to use what's worked before, right? Okay. Hindsight and all that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you need a few things to have any hope. One, you need the elites on your side in the colony. And this is different, by the way, if we were fomenting revolution in a country that rules itself. Because... Mm. The elites are not going to be on the side of revolution in a country that rules itself. So if right. you look at the Russian Revolution, you look at the French Revolution, the revolutions of 1848, 
those revolutions were against the elites and mm. they require a completely different kind of strategy. But in a colonial revolution, you get the elites on your side and you need to get another international power on your side. Those are the two keys to success, I think. So let's just, for the sake of the hypothetical, pretend that you were born into the elite class of the colony. Yeah. You and your elite buddies are just tired of those foreign elites telling you what to do. Mm -hmm. So you already got that on your side. All the rich people are for independence and revolution. Right. How do you garner a world power or a large country's sympathy to support your revolution? It's easiest if you have a rival to the kind of mother country. Right. So you look at the U.S.'s revolution. Obviously, France and England had a very contentious relationship at mm. the time. True, true. And so it was not overly difficult for them to get the French on their side. Right. And if you look at the Latin American revolutions, Mexico had support within the U.S. pretty early on for their revolution. Mm -hmm. The rest of Latin America and South America especially did not have it as easy. They didn't manage to get any kind of support throughout the revolution, which is one of the reasons that I think they were so unsuccessful throughout so much of it. They didn't have that mm -hmm. external support. Because the, the external support really galvanizes the country, I think. It shows, it's not just these small fry people in our country that are saying this is a good thing. It's those big and powerful European powers that are also in agreement. Like that right. lends so much more credence to it. Because I think a lot of people in colonies at the time would have viewed themselves as, you know, kind of small, kind of parochial, not very important. And it's those huge, rich, powerful countries over in Europe that have all of the sway right. in the world. So you, you get the you get the wealthy on your side and you get the international powers on your side. Now, that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. But in actually going through the process, you also need, I think, going into it to have a structure that you are planning on bringing the country to afterwards. Okay. And this is one of the things that I've noticed about South America and their revolutions. Mm. And even the revolutions of 1848, a lot of different revolutions that were lacking it's an unclear vision of what it looks like after the revolution. And it's not like the U.S. had, you know, the Constitution planned and everything day one. Like right. It took a decade after independence to kind of settle the foundations of our legal system. Mm -hmm. But even thinking about the geographical borders and who is actually involved and having a consensus around that. Mm -hmm. Like what we talked about with Bolivar trying to establish Greater Colombia. Well, he didn't have any kind of consensus in those three countries that they wanted to be part of the same country. He had this vision that they were all going to be part of the same country. Right. But a lot of people in all of these countries were supporters of their own independence. They were regionally minded. They were not minded in terms of this larger group. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have that automatic consensus and that automatic kind of unity... That's way too dangerous. Scrap that immediately. Okay. And the other thing is that you need to make sure, like the, the one key about having a revolution, I think for me, is you have to be successful and you have to be successful quickly. Like you have to ensure that there's relative to little downside. If mm. things go south at all, abandon ship because continuing the fight is just going to destroy your country and make it impossible to get a country off the ground when you start. It's really hard to get a new country off the ground. It's uh -huh. really hard to get recognized by a lot of people internationally, get foundations of a stable government in place to especially get people to 
embrace and be responsible with self-government after mm-hmm. they've never governed themselves for hundreds of years and have this long tradition of servitude. Right. You really need to make sure that everybody's in place and nobody's wiped out. If you're starting to have famines and a large portion of the population is dead and a lot of the leadership and the intellectuals are dead, well, that's that's a problem. Like, you're not going to be successful if your country is as riddled and destroyed as that. It's not strong enough as an independent unit. And so you need to make sure that you are able to strike fast, strike hard, and not have any kind of major setbacks. So then let's address some of these things. Okay. Say you strike fast, strike hard, you don't have immediate success, and there is like a long, drawn-out battle or war or whatever. Mm, Yeah. What do we focus on? This battle is going on longer than we want it to, right? Yeah. Some cities maybe aren't in great shape. But overall, the structure of whatever country that we're in right now is still standing strong. So, what are we focused on? What are we trying to keep strong while this long, drawn-out battle is happening? What are we focusing on as this battle is going on? I think as the war is progressing, you just need to really focus on keeping the structures of the country in place, Mm. making sure that everything does not crumble. And this is one of the difficulties when you've had no self-government. Like, it depends on how much autonomy you had beforehand. Like, if you look at the American colonies, they already had their own local legislatures. They already had their local government structures. Mm. And yes, they had a British-appointed governor, but they already had some structures in place for self-government. You don't see that so much in other places, mm-hmm. especially when you look at like Haiti, where it was a slave revolt. Like right. there's obviously no self-government there. And so if you have any of that, you really need to make sure that you maintain that and that you maintain the general structure. I think one of the dangers of a revolution is losing control. It can spiral really badly because war is chaos and change is chaos. Mm-hmm. And so controlling and managing that change effectively so that everything stays on an even keel is the primary focus right as terrible as some of the structures might be and as much as you might want to reform them maintaining them until you get independence and can reform them peacefully is i think essential when you look at things like the french revolution when you're moving through the revolution suddenly you lose the plot and everybody starts getting their head cut off that's dangerous and you can't Mm -hmm. have that because that is scarring endlessly Okay. But what about you? Like, what would you do? What do you think is important with this? Ideally, Mm. they're far enough away (laughs) to not immediately shut you down. That seems to be a recipe for success. Now, that's not something you can do, but I'd like to think that if I were in a position where a revolution is starting, I'd like to think that before I do anything, I make sure that whatever country I'm revolting against is not right next door. Sure. It's easier to revolt against Spain across the ocean than it is yeah. in the Netherlands or something. Yeah, Right. Just somewhere where it would be especially inconvenient for them. Okay, okay. Because I think that leads to at least a greater chance of success. It's kind of impossible to control that. Yeah, I know. But that's why I said, like the US or a country in South America. So ideally, my idea is that this revolution is happening very far away from mm. the country that colonized us. Well, you know, really with this whole thing, I think it's more interesting to think about it today. How would you foment revolution today? Because obviously a lot of the problems of societies back then are gone. Like 
there's instant communication. Right. You no longer have slavery and the same kind of racial divides that you had then. I mean, you still have some, but they're not nearly as deep. How would you go about this now? Mm. I really got to think about this. I don't think I'd want to do it in the U.S. I feel like that's just out of the question. Why? Military's too big, man. Okay. I just think it'd be hard to convince people to turn against the government. And I'm sure there's people who are willing to turn against the government, but I think there's way too many different opinions on what's wrong with the government. That mm. would just lead to chaos, and then there'd be a giant power vacuum and like endless civil war. Yeah, I do think that one way to foment this sort of thing in a country like the U.S. is to kind of misdirection, right? Mm. Like, for instance... Everyone was talking about California secessionism after Trump was elected and all that, right? Like, right. obviously, that's not a serious thing. But Texas and a lot of people in Texas have seriously talked about it for a long time. Something tells me John has thought about <laughs> a revolution in the U.S. No, but, I, you know, I've thought about where instability could come from. Because, I mean, mm. even a lot of people have talked about how with rising sectarian conflict in the states and potentially rising violence, that we could destabilize in certain ways. Because people are legitimately afraid that we'll re-enter some sort of not large-scale armed conflict like we did in the first civil war but right you know some sort of internal conflict mm. and so when i think about this and i think about well if texas tried to secede mm. that's such a strong misdirection that would take so much attention of government that it provides an opportunity to take either the government in a different direction or to split off another part of the country or something like that. I mean, this is when you generally see revolutions, right? The US is a slightly odd example. But when you look at the Latin American revolutions, they happened when Spain was at war with Napoleon and the French. Mm -hmm. When you look mm -hmm. at the Russian revolution, it happened when Russia was in World War One and couldn't survive, basically couldn't maintain the war effort. Most revolutions happen because of these other additional factors. The French Revolution happened right after a famine and after these huge debts that were incurred by the war in the US. Mm. All of these sorts of things make it easier to have a revolution. Okay. And when you look at most revolutions that were attempted in a time of stability, like the 1848 revolutions across Europe, they don't result in victory because in a stable time, the populace generally wants stability and doesn't want to burn it all down. If you manage to get some sort of large-scale instability, mm. I think you stand a much greater chance. Okay, I see. Well, in that context, I think it probably would be pretty easy to do that in the U.S. Well, I'm not sure it'd be easy, but like, I, I think mean, it's possible. Everything's so polarized. I don't think it'd be that difficult to get people to a point of violence. I mean, everyone's already on the edge already, like you were saying. Well, and there are a huge number of people within the country and in most countries that really do want to reform the state in certain respects. They don't want the government to exist as it has existed for a long time. Most mm. people in the states believe that the government is incredibly inept and ineffective. And so, you know, that disillusionment definitely leads to the potential. But I, I mean, my stance in a larger sense is that revolutions are counterproductive. I don't think revolutions are useful. Mm. And so... I wouldn't, even if I could kind of foment a revolution, I, I think that it's counterproductive. So I would not do that. Not even in like a country that was small enough and you had a plan ready for when you toppled that current government, ready to go, and you had people that were well-liked and followed and ready to be put in positions of power so you could just sort of have this not necessarily smooth transition, but a transition that 
would be effective. I mean, in the ideal situation, and maybe the U.S. came out of their revolution pretty well. Mm-hmm. But even when you look at that, if the U.S. hadn't declared independence, mm. it would have essentially ended up like Canada. Right. Which doesn't sound that bad. Seems fine. There's no downsides to that. I suppose that's true. If you look at the Latin American countries, like I think if they hadn't gone through the process of revolution, they might have been in a much better situation a hundred years later, just staying under Spain's rule and gradually gaining independence. They would be independent today. There's no way that they wouldn't be independent. But the process of gaining their independence laid waste to the country. That's just a really dangerous thing. You look at a lot of countries, the US largely got out unscathed, but when you look at France, you look at Russia, you look at most countries that undergo revolution, they're extremely damaged, not just physically and economically, but psychologically. Right. There's this deep divide that will run through the country because mm-hmm. for most revolutions, a lot of people have their property appropriated. A lot of people suffer. They see other family members suffer at the hands of other people in the country. It's hard to progress constructively if you went through that process of destruction. And so I think generally speaking, the best way to achieve political change is incremental adjustment and incremental improvement. Mm -hmm. Kind of that old English model. Every once in a while, the people or the aristocracy try to wrestle a little bit of power from the king and negotiate away more power. And over the course of 500 years, the king loses all of his power and it becomes a full-fledged democracy. That structure, or that kind of slow, muddling progression, that is really the best way to go about things. Okay. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah, that makes sense. So, hypothetically, John would just take a little power, little by little, over hundreds of years, and have his own country. Exactly, focus on little reforms. That's a good way to do it. I mean, it's not super exciting. People aren't going to talk about you, but it works. Yeah, it's a non-revolution revolution. Yeah, it's subtle. <laughs> I think that's John's style. Yeah, because I've always thought, and this was one of the big problems with communism, I think, is that the process of establishing a communist regime requires this overthrow. Yeah, it's like scorched earth. It is, yeah. It, yeah. Like it requires the destruction of the country. Yeah, it's the process after tearing down the entire country that I find the most difficult to think would be ever possible to give a handful of people the power to stabilize and build the new civilization. Hmm. And then slowly after it's been established, give up the power. No one's ever going to do that. No one's ever going to be like, I'm in charge of this. Okay, I'll just give it up once you guys are all in good shape. Later. Well, and there's no easy way to do that. There's no obvious roadmap how you go from communist dictatorship to communist utopia. But like even beyond that, Communism is based on the idea that capitalists create so much economic well-being and improved modes of production that you can overthrow them and just maintain those new modes of production that they've figured out and everyone will be happy and wealthy. But if you, in the process, destroy a lot of the industrial infrastructure and kill a lot of the capitalists and all of that, well, you really do destroy your ability to produce. And so not only are the wealthy and the bourgeoisie and the capitalists and the landowners disenfranchised after a revolution of that sort, but the people that worked for them now can't produce stuff because their factory got burnt down and because (laughs) there was all of this conflict. I mean, this is why you see in early communist China and early Soviet Russia and Ukraine that there's a lot of famine because... You can't even produce enough food because everything's thrown into chaos and destabilized and destroyed. And it's a fundamentally destructive process. That's what revolution Mm. is. 
and reform is a much better option. Now, one of the problems with reform is that you get a system like what the English have now, right. where it's an incredibly poorly constructed system that doesn't even have a written constitution. So like mm-hmm. you get all of these weird gray areas where people kind of figure things out. And so it's just not clear. It doesn't have the clarity and precision that you would want it to have. But I think at some point the English could go through a process of having a constitutional convention kind of thing in the way that the States did in 1787, Mm -hmm. where you, in a reformist mindset, lay down, these are how the structures are going to be governed explicitly. Uh And for that, you don't need revolution because that stuff's already kind of in place. You're just formalizing it and clarifying it. Mm-hmm. But uh, that, that's how I would go about it. I, I think that that's how most people nowadays would go about it because revolution is, has clearly been shown to be pretty destructive. Legit. All right. Now we know. Now we know. Although I'd totally be for the scorched earth thing just to see how it goes. Power vacuums can be interesting. They could also be really sad. Really sad. And lead to a lot of death. But I'm optimistic. <laughs> optimistic about burning it all down i don't think about burning it down i'm just saying if i were to start a revolution it has to be scorched earth it's got to be all or nothing baby so i wanted to talk about the irish abortion referendum okay so we're recording this on may 26th which is the day after the abortion referendum here in in ireland Ireland. jinx (laughs) We record these episodes a few weeks in advance, so it's just now happened. It looks like it's going to have passed, we believe, but that's kind of beside the point because I'm not particularly interested in the actual, well, I am interested, but I don't really want to discuss the actual content of whether or not you should ban abortions or legalize abortions or whatever. And we have no opinion on this. No opinion that I want to discuss. (laughs) Yeah. But referendums are an interesting thing in society when you're talking about a representative Mm -hmm. democracy. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of referendums in California. How do you feel about them? I'm okay with them. I don't feel strongly one way or the other about them. Okay. Sometimes it's necessary. Hmm. You know, if it's something that most people want, or if at least it's torn and kind of 50-50 and they want to let the people decide they should. Yeah, I am less positive about referendums. So there are two problems with referendums. One problem, Mm. and we run into this a lot in California, Mm. is that if it has something to do with spending or budgeting something, like when California passed the referendum to build the high-speed train between Northern California and Southern California, Mm. you are essentially tying the hands of the legislature. So you're saying... We're going to take these billions of dollars and say, we're going to spend it on this. We don't, in this process, think about what are the other things that we're sacrificing to do this because the referendum doesn't deal with that. It deals with only this very narrow thing. Mm. And when you have a government and you're trying to make budgetary decisions, you need to take in the whole view and say, well, sometimes we need to sacrifice this. Sometimes we have to put that off. You know what I mean? Like you have to be able to put together priorities. You can't do that with a referendum. And so sometimes you get Mm. a lot of spending on things that are just not what we should be spending money on when Mm -hmm. you consider other factors. Okay. The other thing is that referendums don't allow for debate at the time. And a lot of times referendums are somewhat ambiguous. Like you don't necessarily know what's going to happen after. And for this, I think the key example is Brexit. Mm. So when the UK had the referendum to leave the European Union, they had no idea what that meant. So everyone had to vote on whether or not to stay in the EU, but no one knew what does that mean? Does that mean 
we're going to have no connections? Does that mean we're still going to have military and security connections? Does that mean we're still going to have the customs union and be able to do all of the trade that we currently can do? Does that mean we're going to have a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland? They had no idea what that meant because the referendum was just about leaving. It was not about a detailed proposal. The same right. with this referendum in Ireland right now. Mm-hmm. The whole referendum, for those people who aren't following Irish politics very closely, is about repealing the Eighth Amendment to the Irish Constitution, which essentially bans any kind of abortion. And different people have different ideas for what they want to put in place after the fact. But the referendum does not actually address what's going to happen after. And this kind of ambiguity, I think, is a real problem. Because you're having people vote and they don't really know what they're voting on. Right. Because right now, if you get raped, if the child is going to have, you know, abnormalities or die within weeks of birth, those sorts of situations, they still can't get an abortion. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of people that support that sort of thing. Right. They want to allow those, but they don't want to allow elective abortions. Mm. And so they would support one sort of reform, but they wouldn't support the other one. But they don't know if they vote yes to repeal this amendment, what they're going to get, because it's not clear. It's not part of the vote. It has to be decided by the legislature after the fact. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with Brexit, where when they decided to leave the EU, the government then has to negotiate, well, what does this mean? I think if you're going to have a referendum, right. you have to have it be clear what the result is. That makes sense. You need to be voting on something to replace whatever you're removing. Right. Because I was thinking, I mean, at the very least, they could tell them what the consequences are, mm. good and bad. Yeah what potential outcomes there would be from the consequences. Well, but see, you don't know what the consequences are if you don't know exactly what's replacing it. Well, I mean, if something like this comes up to a vote, wouldn't the government be prepared for either outcome or at least have thought about it? They could definitely let the public know, hey, if you vote yes for this, things will change and these are potential outcomes. So we'll have these potential systems to put in place of what we're replacing or what we're not replacing. Right. But it's a whole question. You can talk about potential outcomes, like with this abortion referendum, a lot of people have talked about, well, maybe they'll have elective abortion up to 12 weeks. Maybe they won't have elective abortion, but they'll just be able to get rid of things with when the baby has a birth defect. Uh, still... like, but you don't know. You don't know. It's not decided. So you can't really talk about what does voting yes right. mean because it's undecided. But I think it's still important to be mindful of the options you have if they're given to you before the vote. If they hear from someone credible and they see that one of the options is something they'd rather not have, maybe it'll sway their vote. But you can't possibly think that that ambiguity is good. Like with the EU referendum in the UK, a lot of people talked about it wasn't going to have any sort of economic impact because a lot of people kind of presupposed that even if they left the EU, they would stay in the customs union. But then other people were talking about, no, we're leaving the EU and we're not going to be in the customs union. And we're going to just completely sever these sorts of ties. Those are two very, very different outcomes. And no one really controls, no one can dictate which of those is going to happen. Like, think about this. In that referendum, people voted to leave. Well, what if two thirds mm -hmm. of the people that voted to leave wanted to stay in the customs union? You have no idea. You have no idea like what they're voting for. And they have no idea what they're voting for. But they should understand the weight of their vote. That if they vote to leave, but want to stay in the customs union, then maybe it would be better for them to vote to stay instead of risking. Yes, you're right. I guess if you're mindful of then you could say, okay, well, because there's this potential. And that's what I saw a lot of with the people here in Ireland that wanted to vote against repealing the Eighth Amendment. They were essentially like, well, it could be that they put out 
elective abortion. We don't want to have elective abortion. We would be in favor of allowing abortion during rape, or not during rape, but after right, rape. Post. But we don't want to allow elective abortions, so we're going to vote against this. But that ambiguity is a problem. If you're voting, you should know exactly what you're voting for. Mm -hmm. Because it's already hard enough to vote for things. It's already hard enough to be educated on issues. Mm -hmm. If it's impossible to know because nobody knows what the actual result's going to be, well, then it's impossible to decide whether or not you want to do that. So do you think referendums, instead of voting to get rid of something or to implement something, they should vote on thing that would replace it yes or the things that they're going to sacrifice to implement the new law yeah i think there needs to be a particular proposal that's being voted on like with brexit mm -hmm. in order to have that referendum and i'm not saying that they couldn't have had the initial referendum as they did to start discussions but a part of that initial right. referendum needed to be okay go negotiate exit and then come back and have another vote on what you get because then people will say, yes, preliminarily, we're interested in leaving the EU. And then after the second vote, after we have a fully flushed out proposal, we can say, yes, we approve this change. Mm -hmm. And the same with this. Before they decided to repeal this, it should have been built in what the replacement was going to be. Right. That seems obvious to me. Not having that seems incredibly destructive because you have no idea. Like this was the same thing with the Scottish referendum for independence from the UK mm -hmm. a few years back. Or was it? It was more recent than that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. But I think it so. doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. They had no idea what it would mean. They had no idea mm -hmm. would they be able to stay in the EU. They had no idea would they be able to keep the British pound. They had no idea what was going to happen with a lot of different aspects of it. And that incredible right. ambiguity makes it impossible for individuals in that country to have a vote. Now, you can have that sort of ambiguity in the legislature if the government is deciding something, because in the legislative process, there's debate. Everyone can get up and talk about it and hash it out and argue about it. But in a vote, you mm -hmm. have to establish before the vote what you're voting on. And if it's unclear what the results of the vote are, the vote is, it's a pointless thing. You should not ever have that. Okay. You feel very strongly about this. I do, because I think these sorts of flaws are the things that mire us in quagmire and just, ugh, they, they're frustrating. There was one other aspect of this particular referendum that I wanted to get to, and that's uh -huh. how poorly written some laws can be. Mm -hmm. The Eighth Amendment in Ireland, that law is just a bad law. And I think you run into this a lot, that like the intention of a law might be reasonable, but the ramifications of the law are bad mm -hmm. because it's just not well thought out. Right. For instance, with this law, it outlaws any kind of abortion in the country unless the woman's life is at risk. Uh -huh. That means that if she has a child growing inside of her that is going to die, is not going to come to term, it's clear because uh -huh. of an abnormality in the pregnancy, she right. still has to keep it until it actually dies inside of her. And that seems like an incredibly stupid thing. Right. Why not just deal with it then? The child's not going to be born. And you get these documented cases of people who are told by the doctor, yeah, we have to wait for it to actually die. And so they're sitting around for a month or two as the kid slowly dies inside them until it actually has its heartbeat stop and they can remove it. Oh, that just sounds grim. Yeah, it it is grim. It is a bit of a grotesque situation. But the other side of this is that it's perfectly legal for people in Ireland to fly to the UK and get an abortion. 
And this is the other side of the utter stupidity of this law, that as long as you're not doing it on Irish soil, it's fine. That's insane. Logically, if this law is banning abortion, it's banning abortion because the rights of the child supersede the rights of the mother to terminate her. Like that has to be the Uh idea. So essentially what they're saying is you're killing a child. You're killing a tiny Irish person growing inside you. Mm -hmm. You can't just fly across to England and murder Irish people. That's not okay. I mean, I think England is okay with it. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like the Irish government would prosecute you for murder if you murdered their citizens in other countries. Just because you're murdering them overseas doesn't mean you're not murdering. And so it seems insane that they're like oh yeah you can just fly across and doctors will recommend this they're like yeah if you want to get an abortion just fly over to liverpool how is that possibly legal they should definitely be arrested if it's a criminal act it's a criminal act and it doesn't matter if you do it elsewhere maybe it's just one of those rules that they don't feel very strongly about well i think it's a practical can't just monitor every person who's going to the uk and be sure that they're not going to get an abortion Right. So sure, there's some sort of issues with enforcement. I just think in principle, I mean, I do understand. you might be able to get a sneaky one, just like you could get an illegal abortion in Ireland and not get arrested because you were sneaky. Mm-hmm. Some people will get away with it. Maybe it's not very well enforced. But the fact that that's legal is internally contradictory. Like you can't have that be the law. I suppose not. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do understand what you're saying. And I guess because, you know, it's the law of the land and all the citizens are, I suppose, beholden to the law. So I guess even if they did it outside of the country, they would still be accountable for their actions. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of thing should definitely be illegal for everyone or it should be legal for everyone. It shouldn't be illegal unless you fly to Manchester. Anyway, so Uh something may have a very good intention. It may have a very good purpose and make a lot of sense. Right. But if it's really poorly implemented, it completely defeats its own purpose and becomes destructive and counterproductive it Mm -hmm. bothers me when that sort of thing happens yeah it's strangely worded yeah the state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn and with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother guarantees in its laws to respect and as far as practicable by its law to defend and vindicate that right now i can see why maybe it's okay to do it in the uk and in ireland Mm. because it's just acknowledging the life of the child here if you go to a different country and they don't acknowledge it there, I could see how it would be not against the law for an Irish citizen to do it outside of the country. I just think it's completely moronic. Well, that's another thing John hates about Ireland. Oh, stop it. Maybe not anymore. Maybe it's changed. Still, he hated it. John does not like a lot of things about Ireland. It's crazy. We should have a whole episode about everything John hates. (sighs) Uh Uh-huh. Like I always say, I like it here. I like a lot of things about this place. I know. There are problems everywhere. There's nothing I complain about more than the States. But moving on to the next topic. Okay, okay. John hates Ireland. John, how does having other people in your head all the time affect your thoughts? Weirdly, I think. The context around this is mm-hmm. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and a lot of mm-hmm. different audio stuff. Mm-hmm. So I have these voices in my head. I have these people telling stories. I have these people talking about issues in my head a lot. Mm. And I think it's been, 
I mean, it of course has been affecting my kind of mental patterns and how I'm thinking and what I'm thinking about. Do you listen to a lot of things as you go around throughout your day? Mm, I mean, generally I'm at work, so no. You're not at work all the time. You go to work, you leave work, you go to lunch, you do other things. Um, I'll listen to like NPR when I'm driving to work and driving to lunch on my way home. But you don't listen to things when you're out and about, when you go to the store, you don't have headphones in listening to stuff? No, no, I don't do that. Okay. I like being cognizant of what's going on around me. I like hearing things. Okay, that makes sense. When I was in China, I had a lot of walking around to find various odd places that I had to go to teach people. And right. that involved long commutes and whatnot. And so I utilized that time to kind of be learning and trying to listen to The Economist's audio version or listen to podcasts, mm -hmm. things like that. I think it's a useful thing. But I used to walk a lot and just think when I walked. And it's a really mm -hmm. nice thing to walk and just decompress and process what's happened over the course of the day. And it kind of allows mm -hmm. you to sift through your emotions and everything that's on your mind. And as I've replaced that gradually with listening to more and more things, I do find myself mm -hmm. more, I'm not sure what the word is. It's not frantic. It's not even that I'm having trouble focusing, but my mind is thinking differently. And I don't quite know how to quantify it, but it's mm. an odd, peculiar result. Okay, I have a question for you. Maybe this will help. What do you find yourself thinking about now since you started listening to more things as opposed to before? Well, I mean, I'm obviously thinking about the things that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So instead of thinking about things relating to a job or to my friends or to just other issues that I'm reading about or mm -hmm. thinking about generally that I talked to somebody about recently, or even, you know, all, what it really does take me out of. I, so I don't think about what's happening in my life as much. Okay. So I'm not necessarily going over events or planning things in my mind as I walk around. I'm thinking more about the issues that are being discussed in whatever things that I'm listening to. Mm. And even more than that, as I said, when I was walking around before, I used to think a lot. And now I'm listening a lot. Okay. And so it's a fundamental difference in terms of what I'm actually doing. Right. I do think that... Like, I think fundamentally, you kind of do two things a lot, or at least I do two things a lot. You consume things and you produce things, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're listening to a podcast, if you're watching a movie, if you're reading a book, that's all consuming information. If you're listening to a lecture, if you're talking to a friend, you know, obviously talking to a friend is give and take, but like, that's all right. consuming. And then when you're producing things, you're writing, you're recording a podcast like we are, or you're thinking. Mm -hmm. There are different ways that you're kind of producing things and, you know, synthesizing, analyzing. Right. And one of the things this has done to me is shifted me toward more consumption and less production. I see. Obviously, you need some inputs because it sparks creativity, it sparks your thinking, right. it allows you to progress in your mind. But having too much input is maybe right. distracting. Yeah, I could see that. Have you considered changing what you're listening to? I mean, I don't know how much you still study your Spanish. Mm, yeah. But maybe you could take 30 minutes or 45 minutes or something out of your day instead of listening to a podcast, practicing something. Well, it's hard because for this, for me, generally speaking, I'm only listening to podcasts when I'm walking or like at the grocery store or something like that. And mm -hmm. so I can't substitute that out, right? Like I can't be, I don't know, practicing drawing while I'm walking to the bus stop. Like that's not a thing 
<laughs> that you could really do. Right. It's either kind of thinking or listening. And mm. it feels very efficient to be listening. Mm -hmm. But I have thought about shifting the things that I'm listening to because, you know, you go through cycles with these sorts of things. You always listen to certain things a lot and then you move on to other things and you listen to other things quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I have kind of pruned it down. But essentially what I've gotten to with this whole thing is I've decided I need to start boiling down and listening less and spending at least a portion of my time that I'm walking every day. Because, you know, I try to walk at least an hour a day. I need to spend mm -hmm. at least half of that thinking and processing the day. And that I think will help with every aspect of my life. And this, I mean, just to talk about the benefits of walking generally, like if you're not listening to anything, walking and thinking, it really lets you delve into and process things that are going on in your life in a way that you just don't when you're doing other things. Like if you're sitting, mm -hmm. reading, if you're watching TV, if you're talking to people, the way you think, or at least the way I think is very different. Uh -huh. And you're not able to sit, like, I don't know anyone who just sits and thinks about their day and stuff. Like, it's not very yeah, I don't common. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, I do that. I was being sarcastic. I do that. I, I write down stuff that was going on in my day. Like a journal? Yeah, that's how I process my thoughts. I sit mm. down, and I think about it, and I write it. Yeah, but I guess, I, I guess it's different because it's not, like, it's almost not like thinking. It's almost kind of an automatic processing. Does that make any sense? it's like you're cooking stuff it's like you've gone through your day and now you're cooking it all down into a broth or something when you're actually explicitly sitting down to write something in a journal i think it's different or at least it feels different when i do it i mean it's not so much i did this i didn't do that it's also questions i may have mm. that'll pop up in the day that i'll write down that i'll come back to later if i forget okay. them an idea whether it's for writing something or something that I think would be cool, but I have no idea how to produce, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like a movie or just sure, something sure. silly. Like I'll write it down. It's kind of just things that I've spent time thinking about. Do you find walking useful for thinking or no? Mm, kind of. I think it can be. Okay. I definitely see how it could be, especially in the right setting. Mm. Like I think if I'm walking down the street, I'm really more thinking about my surroundings as opposed to if, you know, walking to the park where there's a trail and I'm not really worried about crossing the street or bumping yeah. into someone or yeah, I don't have anywhere in particular to go. It's just a walk. Hmm. In that way, I can see how you sort of just really have time for yourself to really be introspective or pensive about whatever it is you want to be pensive about. Yeah, because there are a few opportunities throughout your day to not have any sort of distraction and I'm not sure if it's mm -hmm. the motion of walking or the fact that you have all of these sensational inputs from the lights and the sound uh -huh. and the feeling of the air and all of that. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it is about walking, but you're not bored if you're walking generally. And right. it, I find, spurs thinking and, and kind of opens you up to new ideas. And I generate most of the interesting ideas that I have and a lot of the things that we talk about on the show derive from when I'm on a walk and I'm thinking about things. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why walking is so useful with that, but I would advise anybody that never really walks. And when I say walk, I'm not talking about like walk five minutes to your car or to the corner store. I mean like walking for 30, 40 minutes at a time. And John walks a lot. I can attest to this. Well, yeah. From the several trips that we've gone on and we're in cities and 
John's idea of fun was to walk around the city. I think it's a lot of fun. How else do you get to know the city if you don't walk around the city? Yeah, that whole 20 miles of walking. So it's a good way to get to know the city. Yeah, it's good stuff. Experiencing the bars or the restaurants or whatever else they have there. Well, you sit down and eat at some point. Yeah, you know. At some point. Yeah, that's true. Admittedly, San Francisco is not the best walking city in the world. It is not. But it is fun. I will give them that. Yeah. You do get to see a lot of things you wouldn't ordinarily see. When we did it in Seoul, it was great, right? It was pretty good in Seoul. Yeah. And Guangzhou, too. These are in Korea, by the way. Yeah. Places in Korea. So, again, it's not bad. Yeah. At all. Just, this this is John's favorite thing to do. It's definitely up there. After making people upset at this contrarian ways. (laughs) (laughs) We mentioned a couple weeks ago that we were going to talk about this Netflix documentary series, Wild Wild Country. And Mm -hmm. for anybody that hasn't seen it and doesn't want any spoilers, now would be the time to turn it off. This is going to be the last thing we talk about. It's the last thing we mention. So feel free to pause the podcast, go watch all six hours of it, and come back and listen to the rest of it. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind spoilers, feel free to keep listening. You should listen to it even if you don't like spoilers. Well. (laughs) I have a lovely speaking voice, and John has a lot to say. That combination generally leads to... To something. Mayhem and mischief. Old mayhem and mischief. That's what I call my left and my right. Okay, so what were your impressions? What's your Mm -hmm. overall takeaway from this series, Mike? I already forgot her name. Sheila, right? Sheila, yeah. The main person, yes. She is a very crazy lady. True. That is the main takeaway I got from it. But like, I mean, thumbs up, thumbs down. Did you like it? Did you find it interesting? Oh, yeah. It was super interesting. Okay. Watching it. And then sort of seeing this really interesting power struggle between the town and the cult. It felt like a really long episode of Game of Thrones or something, you know? Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Not the, yeah, it was, <laughs> not the thing I would use to describe it. I don't know how else to describe it. But that first book was just plotting and working against each other and enacting plans to try to get the way. And like they were doing some crazy stuff, you know? They were doing some crazy stuff. Yeah, like the town was trying to get unincorporated so that this cult couldn't get any influence in the town. And the cult was doing all these crazy things to improve their voting power in the town. Just to walk people through, we should probably give some context. Oh, okay. So, this is a six-part series. It starts out in India with this guru who people were talking about being like the next Buddha or what have you, who has Mm. a commune in India. And Mm. he has this poon or puna or... Yeah, it's in Pune. Yeah. There we go. And he's called the Bhagwan, Mm. which I just got to say, really funny name to me. Yeah. Hilarious name. But even further, he has another name after that, the Osho. Oh, yeah, Osho. Guy has like five names. Yes, yes. He's a leader. He's got to. You can't have one name. So he's in India somehow. And this is something that I never fully understood. You know, I I think it would have been better if they had gone a little bit more into his doctrine and like what was so convincing about him because so many people seem so enamored with him and dedicated to him yeah and i didn't really understand his teachings very well so i did a little bit of reading about it okay and he seems to have been this anti-socialism anti-gandhi pro-capitalist mystic who believed in free love and was sort of against religions that encourage being poor and yeah suffering and he did seem to be somewhat like a capitalist hippie where he said you should make money and you should be successful and produce good things in the world but you should also have free love and be spiritually pure and not be greedy and take from people and whatnot yeah so he believed that 
you could achieve purity through materialism and not just through sacrifice and poverty. Right. Which I can see how that might be appealing. Yeah, it's an interesting take. Mm. So he got a lot of support from wildly disparate places. He brought in a bunch mm. of people. One of the people was from Australia. Some of the people are from the States. People yeah. from kind of all over Europe. Mm. Eventually, he raises up one of his followers to the secretary position, which is kind of the position where she kind of runs everything. And this was Sheila, the person mm. that Mike mentioned, the mm-hmm. main person throughout the documentary. Yeah, almost like the public face of the cult during this time. Yeah, and he tasks her with moving the cult and I mean, we keep saying cult. I think we should be hesitant to call it a cult. I, I don't Fine. like the word cult. Fine. Uh, the movement. Yeah, sure. Movement. Movement works well, actually. Yeah. So she's the head of this movement, the, f- the face of this movement. Mm-hmm. And she's tasked with moving it to the States. And so she goes all mm. over the States, tries to find stuff. She finds this place in Oregon. They transplant out to Oregon, right outside this one mm. small town. Called Antelope. Called Antelope, exactly. And this is kind of where mm-hmm. the story picks up. They go through a series of crazy things in Antelope and around Antelope, like you were talking about, where they try to establish themselves in Antelope or near Antelope in this massive 100-square-mile uh-huh. farm. Yeah, it's enormous. It's huge. I don't remember if I read this or I heard this, but basically the space was the size of Manhattan and Brooklyn or mm. something. It was like the size of two boroughs. Yeah. So it's just a large plot of land. Yeah, out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and just... they try to build this commune on it and build these farms and like put up a dam to put up lakes and everything like really making a lot of investment and where i think this starts to spiral and it's interesting to me how they go about this because almost immediately once this starts happening the local community i think it was the county issues an order that they can't have all of this stuff built on this land they can't have these houses built on this land and all of that and this starts this kind of tit for tat that you're describing where they say you can't do this so then the people in the movement try to move into the town and buy up property in the town so they can take over the town's right. government. And then the town tries to disincorporate. When the town tries to disincorporate, the town gets outvoted. And then, right. then the movement tries to take over the county. And like there's this back and forth throughout this whole thing, yeah. which was kind of crazy to me. Yeah, and it really, like, it really escalates. Yeah, it escalates dramatically into people trying to poison people and yeah, threatening like assassinations people attempted assassinations yes it, bombings at the hotel that the movement owns in portland oh yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. going both directions and it's crazy and you know one of the things I, i'm wondering what your impression of this was but when i looked at it first of all i thought isn't it kind of crazy that they said that these guys can't create their town like why can't they that seems insane that yes I agree with you. There. Like, it seems like a real infringement on them that, like, they bought this property, right. they went out there, they built it. They are not doing anything dangerous, particularly. Like, they're raising crops and building houses. Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't seem outrageous to me. Right. I mean, at worst, just force them to get permits for everything they're building. Yeah. You can't just outright tell them that they're not allowed to do well, it. Well, especially because it's out in the middle of nowhere. Like, it's not yeah. really getting on anybody. Like, they're not even that close to the town. And the town only has like 50 people in it. Like it's a real small town. Yeah. You know, people kept stating it as it's this invasion and everything. And it's like, you live Mm -hmm. in a town of 50 people. If a large family comes, they control the town. Like my my girlfriend's family has 13 people in it. There's 11 children. If they come with some of their extended family, they start to outnumber the townsfolk. 
So you know what? You have no say if you don't have enough people to have a say. That's how democracy works. Right. But I, I really had this thought that like all of the craziness that goes throughout the show, and there is a lot of craziness mm. with gun smuggling and all sorts of drugging people and all of that craziness, oh. I feel like would have been avoided if they hadn't just tried to shut them down at the start. If they had just left him alone, none of that would have happened. Right. I feel like there was some xenophobia there definitely yeah and a lot of the people were americans most of the people in the compound and in the movement were americans yeah i guess some sort of religious intolerance yes definitely going on perhaps if not and you know the other thought that i had Uh. so everyone in this movement had to wear this kind of weird color of red oh yeah they wore like maroon and orange yeah really noticeable and i couldn't help but think if they didn't have that color requirement they would have never been noticed Right. They would have just blended right in. Yeah, they probably just would have been like, oh, yeah, they're just that weird neighboring town. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like all these people moving (laughs) to this new town. That seems easy to deal with. But as soon as you get all these weird people wandering around with the same color of clothing and everyone's wearing fully just this one color, suddenly, oh, it's a bunch of crazy zombie people and they look crazy. Mm. But as much as I felt sympathetic for these guys in terms of I felt like they were really being attacked needlessly when everyone there was consenting to be there and no one was doing anything particularly to harm anybody outside until they started to have their community assaulted in various ways Uh, sheila was so crazy oh my god they tried to take an inch from her and then she tried to take a foot yeah true that lady was not playing any what did she try to poison people with a coli she tried to poison the water salmonella oh yeah yeah salmonella yeah they poisoned like 700 people with salmonella and they tried to what was it they tried to grind up so they first tried to put certain i think it was otters or something into the water supply to poison the water supply for the county Uh uh-huh and then when they couldn't fit them into the tanks they ground them down and just poured them in really shocking things yeah, they were, they were, I think after they lost the vote in the county, they sent chocolates out to the people in the town mm. of Antelope Yeah, with, I guess, poison in them or something because people were like getting sick from them yeah. and they tried to kill, I can't remember, his last name was like Hush or Hoos or something. The district attorney or whatever? Yeah. They gave him like a glass of water that was tainted with something yeah. and immediately started vomiting and dying of like death ale yeah i I have no idea i don't even some sort of disease yeah yeah and then i guess there was like this really weird internal power struggle between sheila and these really rich people who are giving money to the bogwan hollywood types yeah and so at some point i guess the bogwan's doctor married this lady who sheila didn't like very much so she convinced one of the followers to try and kill the doctor yeah it all seems crazy and you know i don't think that they should have been shut down at the start but i find it hard to imagine how sheila throughout this whole process thought that any of these things were going to work like at one point they got a lot of guns to defend the compound and things which granted i i get because they were afraid of some of the ranchers around who all had guns that might come on and kill some of them so like i get buying some guns to defend yourself. You're way out in the countryside, surrounded by hostile people. But these were like automatic weapons. Well, yeah. These were like military weapons. But that's not even what I'm talking about. They weren't rifles. It's like you're part of a small religious minority, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to take over. There's not enough of you to take over. Right. And where I really lost them 
is when they started bringing in the homeless people. Oh, right. So in order to take over this county, they needed enough people to vote to take over like some seats on the county in order to ensure mm. that their own survival, right? And so they sent people out throughout the entire country and they talked to homeless people offering to allow homeless people to come to the compound and stay and they would offer medical help and food and shelter and everything, which on one hand right. kind of seems laudable and nice, but the uh -huh. whole strategy was around trying to get enough people for this vote. Yeah. And they eventually pretty rapidly brought in enough homeless people. I think they had double the homeless people that they had of the normal people who were dedicated followers staying there. Uh -huh. They had a lot of them anyway. And as soon as they started doing this, I was like, are you insane? Everything that Sheila did, it's like, how do you possibly see that ending up working? In what world does that seem like an effective thing? Like when they were talking about trying to assassinate whoever they were trying to assassinate. There were several people right. that they were trying to assassinate. Yeah, they were burning down like offices, the planning office or whatever. Yeah, but it's like when you look at things like that, like trying to burn down the planning office, trying to assassinate political figures... How do you expect that is going to get people on your side? In order to survive, you're a very small group. You need to get people on your side. If they think you're a threat and they think you're criminals, they're not going to be on your side. You're not going to have more people than the state of Oregon. You're not going to start outnumbering right. all of these people and actually be able to take over. So in what world are any of these strategies good strategies? Like when you bring in all the homeless people, you're bringing in instability, you're bringing in mental illness, you're bringing in people who don't actually believe in the philosophy, who aren't actually dedicated. It seems absolutely insane to do any of that sort of thing. I, I just found it flabbergasting. I think under different leadership, if they had a more tempered person mm, in command. Yeah they probably could have had much more success. Yeah, I think if the other guy, the American lawyer guy with the goatee, oh, if he yeah, was in charge yeah. from the start, I think they would have been fine. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because he wasn't going to do crazy stuff, like try to blow up buildings and no, things. No, And right. that's all they needed to survive. And for any of those splinter groups out there, the best advice you can offer them is oh, to say yes. like, don't be crazy. Have your weird beliefs. Do your weird things. John, just a quick side yeah. note. As we're talking about revolting against the U.S. and right. giving advice to splinter groups, yeah. this is not what we're about. Just FYI, if anyone's like, oh, my God, we should probably report them. They seem like they're anti. No, no, we're not. It's just happy coincidence. Yeah. No, it's not normally. But yeah, jam. don't be crazy, splinter groups. That's our advice. Yeah, it's, it's like have your weird beliefs, but don't try to actively fight society. Because especially with this, they're not trying to live oh, in a yeah. city with other normal American people. They've secluded themselves off. Well, if you want to seclude yourself off, seclude yourself off. Don't mm. try to go to war. Or at least take the sympathy route. Exactly. Oh, we're just a peaceful people minding our own business. Everyone hates us. We didn't do anything. We bought this land legally, blah, blah, yes, blah, blah, blah. Yes. But at the same time, she was very compelling. I found her to be somewhat charismatic. But as the episodes progressed... You could see that there was just zero remorse for anything she did. Yeah, I, I found her strange. In the first episode when she's talking about the crown and the guillotine, mm. I didn't really think much about it until maybe the third or fourth episode. And I was like, oh, yeah, she's crazy. She was absolutely crazy. I'm almost positive Bogwan didn't even know what was going on. He was just minding his own business and she was just going for the kill. Well, and to talk about how crazy she was, he is her spiritual leader that she's dedicated her life to. And she taps oh. his 
phone and puts listening devices in his apartment. Right. What? Because she's afraid of losing influence with him. I know, but like... Which at this point, I'm sure she has. This is when you see that she's not even just a fanatic. She's undermining and being dishonest to the one person that she's dedicated her entire life to. Like, she's clearly not all there. You know what I mean? Like, she, right. she hasn't thought these things through well. And, and also just, it was really interesting to me throughout. One of the things that I talked with my girlfriend a lot about when we were watching this was mm. it seems a little eerie how dedicated and how positively so many of these people still spoke about all of it. Mm, that's true. Like Sheila, at the end, she has this massive falling out with the spiritual leader. And she gets on a plane with some other people and bolts. And then he starts to have a number of speeches, basically like lambasting her and saying that she's crazy and should be arrested and should be right. thrown in jail forever, right? Uh-huh. Even after that, decades after the fact, she still talks about him with yearning and as though he was the greatest person she's ever met and all this love. And it's like, what? How is this a thing? Yeah. When you watch it at first, the way these people talk about the movement being Sinesin or whatever. Sinyasin. Sinyasin. They talk about it so so positively and they talk about the Bhagwan so positively. And the only time there's even like a hint of negativity is when they're talking about Sheila after she completely lost it and is convincing her followers to try to murder people and yeah. convincing them to poison people. But even then, it sounds only mildly negative. Like, oh, she lost it, man. She lost away, but it's all good. Even the Australian lady who left Australia with her family and her kids, had her kids in this movement for this whole time, then went from India to the States with this movement. And Mm. then she was the one who was tasked with murdering various people and smuggling guns and things like that. And she was talking about at one point how they were running guns essentially from somewhere on the East Coast, I think, and they were going to take them on the bus back to Oregon. And she's talking about they're driving around all these different gun stores buying guns and they're just dancing and singing and being so happy with what they're doing. And I was just thinking about like, how could you not think about what you're doing as like, even if you think that it's for the greater good or for the cause or something like that, still feel ambivalent about it. How can you have this kind of unalloyed joy around oh we're gonna get these things that allow people to kill people and get ready to assassinate people like i don't understand how simple-minded she must be like she must be an absolute idiot because at least a little bit. not understanding the ramifications and being so happy around these things and even looking back being relatively happy as she looked back she was to me seemed pretty easily convinced into committing murder <laughs> really easily convinced shockingly yeah. easily and then when she talks about it she's all oh i grew up with the idea of thou shalt not kill and i was shattered at the idea that i just attempted to take someone's life but it didn't seem like she had any hesitation no when she talked about it she just sounded resigned to her fate yeah well sheila told me i had to kill someone so i guess that was what i had to do and i do wonder with movements like this you do give up so much of your autonomy when you're dedicated to a person in that way. That's true. If you get accustomed to just following orders all the time, how easy mm-hmm. is it to do incredibly immoral things because you're just following orders? That's fair. But I think anytime she did something, every time she talked about Sheila telling her what she had to do or if she had to kill someone, it was always in the interest of the Bhagwan. Right. So I guess maybe it wasn't so much that she was okay with being immoral, but she was so in love with this dude like everyone was. That she was going to do whatever she had to do to keep his status or make sure he was safe. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. 
I don't know. Still seems very odd to me. But how did you feel about the documentary itself? So not even about the story, because this is the first like documentary series other than nature documentaries that I've ever watched mm-hmm. like this. And it was, it was a new kind of structure for me. I liked it because mm. there was obviously a lot of information. Yeah, I thought the pacing was a little slow. Mm, I disagree. Okay. I think it was a nice buildup. It, it was a nice build. It was this long, slow build. Yeah. I think it gave you a lot of context and idea of what was happening. It didn't just thrust you into there was this group of people and they, for whatever reason, decided to move into Oregon and try to take everything over. I think they did a pretty good job of showing both sides. Yeah, they were remarkably balanced. I mean, the fact that they interviewed the leaders of the movement and they interviewed a lot of the locals and people who were in opposition and some of the FBI prosecutors that came after them at the end and things. I think they did a remarkable job of staying fairly open and balanced about the whole thing. Yeah, I like the format Mm. because I think you, you really get to know everything. Yeah. From the beginning to the end, the entire process of what was going on. Yeah, and as much as I talked about how I wanted to know more about kind of the underlying philosophy of the Bhagwan, it would have been very difficult. I mean, they already gave us a lot of context. It would have been hard for them to give even more context about his rise and his ideology and all of that. That would have been probably too much. It would have been outside of the actual narrative that they were telling. Mm. And even at the end, like they gave a very nice postscript to a lot of people's lives explaining what the people are doing now, what happened to them. Like Sheila, the leader or the mouthpiece of the group went to prison. The Mm -hmm. other Australian lady who almost murdered a bunch of people, she went to prison for a long time. It's funny because the Australian lady went to prison for like twice the length as Sheila, despite the fact that Sheila was the leader of the whole thing and caused all the problems. Yeah, but Sheila went to jail for almost no amount of time. It was like four or five years. I read it was like 29 months. Really? I thought it was, I don't know. I, I don't remember exactly. Yeah, But the thing is, that she was sentenced to three 20-year sentences and got off early with good behavior after a few years. I only really got what the documentary said, which I think said that she went to prison for three or four or five years, something like that. Yes, but the amount of time that she spent in jail versus the amount of time that she was sentenced for, Mm. crazy to me. Yeah. Apparently she works with elderly people now in Germany. Yeah, which was interesting. She probably kills them in their sleep i doubt that she seemed well-intentioned but just an insane person i don't know because when you hear her interviews like in the ones where she's younger yeah during the whole ordeal she's brutal she's unapologetic if she feels threatened she's immediately threatening back true i think she had a lot of hubris though like when you see her younger interviews it's her clearly thinking that she's on the right side and that she's kind of invincible because she's on the right side and because she's a supporter of the Bhagwan. And right. Not, not that he's all powerful or anything, but like that things will work out because right. you're righteous. And even if you do crazy, mm. terrible things, things will work out. She was kind of full of this huge amount of power. Like, I think she became the leader when she was like 20 or something. 16. Was she that young? I think she was appointed the secretary around that okay. age or that's when she met him. But she was, yeah, she was in power relatively yeah and so it's kind of drunk with this sort of power i imagine yeah that she had for several years at that point yeah it was a very odd like the people were very odd i was really glad that they interviewed so many people that were involved at the time yeah and that is definitely one way to not start a revolution (laughs) yes yes very true yeah i don't know i i thought it was really interesting this whole power struggle between this 
small town and this movement just to watch this town get nearly completely swallowed up by this movement. How do you feel about that sort of thing, though? Do you think there should be some sort of restriction? Because this, on different scales, applies to things like immigration and it applies to things like gentrification. Uh You have a certain existing community that is then fundamentally changed or overrun by large influxes of others of whatever kind. Right. Like what sort of responses do you think are okay? Do you think they should have just moved away or they should have fought and not allowed anything to happen? I think they should have just left them alone to their own devices when they had a chance. I think that would have been their best choice. At that point, they forced their hand. The town forced the movement's hand. True. To go and become a part of this town. And they had the money. They had the resources. It's one thing to maybe shut down a small organization that doesn't have the resources to come in and start buying out the land. But it's another thing to mess with a multi-million dollar organization who can very easily go in and take over your town with a population of 40. Take over your one little shop. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when it started to happen... All I could think of, and granted, I'm much more comfortable with moving places, obviously, but mm-hmm. like it's a little retirement town. So these people didn't grow up there. They're not from there. There are hundreds of little towns all over Oregon. Why not just take the money that they're offering and be like, okay, we're going to go because I don't want to live near all of these people. I can go find another town that's fine and nice and it's fine and leave them alone. Either you just leave them alone to start with or when you start to get into this contentious battle, after a year or two of this contentious battle, just be like, yeah, I'll take your money, buy my house, I'm out of here. Yeah, and when the when the uh, people who lived in the town mm-hmm. didn't give in to them, they were harassing them, constantly videotaping yeah. them, flashing lights into their house at nighttime. They really went total war on them, yeah. Yeah, in the most hilarious way possible. Look, I don't agree with a lot of what they did, but I will say they trolled them so hard. They really did. And if there's one way to get people to leave, that I think was the best way to go about They're the OG it. trolls, yeah. Yeah, it was some strong stuff. It was funny to me how every one of the townspeople seemed to talk at some point about the loud sex. They had <laughs> sex all the time and it was really loud. It was just really funny to me because there's just these old conservative white people and these young hippie free love people. It's just such right. a such a contrast, which is, I think, what made so much of the story so palpably interesting, that conflict of worlds. So I, I would say, like, it's one of the most interesting documentary series. Well, it's the only real documentary series that I've ever watched. And it's one of the most interesting ones I've ever watched. Because it wasn't dry. It was very narrative. It was very much following mm. the story. I knew nothing about it beforehand. Right. And I think it helped a lot that the people they were interviewing, that the former followers or still followers. Yeah, yeah. They really handpicked the right people who were very compelling and well-spoken. True. And so it wasn't dry. And they were leaders. Yeah. I would also say, like, just another point on this is that, remember when we were talking about a couple weeks ago, living through something and the value of experience? Mm. I was shocked at how widespread this was and how Sheila, throughout this whole thing, was on television giving interviews in all of these different big political network shows. Right. She seemed to be on the air all the time. 
And like mm. this was national news regularly with what was happening in this place. Everybody yeah. knew what was happening here. Yeah. And I've never heard of it. Yeah. Like no one brought it up. I can't imagine. And I, I need to ask my parents about this because they must have heard of this. They must have witnessed this whole yeah, thing. Yeah, because this was ongoing for at least a few years. Yeah. And this speaks to that kind of minute knowledge that you get from living through something where it's like, I have no idea about this whole thing. But if I had lived through it, I guarantee you I would know what happened up there. Yeah. You just miss all of these nuggets of history that in the short term seem like a big thing. But five years out, nobody talks about it anymore. Mm, very true. Which is weird. I think this would be something people would talk about regularly. Yeah, because I've heard of Jonestown and, pretty... and that whole thing. I mean, granted, mass suicide yeah. is a bigger thing than just some cult that starts and then leaves. I mean, I suppose that's true. But this, I don't know, it's just it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. They almost snuck in and became part of this county i mean they weren't really that close to taking over the county but they took no. over that town pretty easily although you know something else about the county vote that i found distressing the xenophobia mm. was a problem but the fact that they didn't allow all of these homeless people to register to vote mm. i found somewhat appalling granted all of the strategies that they were employing like bringing in all the homeless people in order to vote to take over the county that seems appalling and incredibly stupid but the right. county needed to still follow their own rules and let people vote. They later were talking about other people from other counties in Oregon driving in just to register for the day and to vote. Oh, yeah. They were talking about people who were coming in from out of the state registering for the day and vote. Yeah. And it's like, if you're allowing people to come and register to vote against the cult, how can you possibly justify banning these people that are homeless that have come here from voting and from registering? These homeless yeah. people are living there. They've moved. Yeah. How is it possible they could ban them like that? Like that sounded absolutely astounding to me. And it just goes to show you that rules and laws are only as good as the people enforcing them. And the people that have the power, if they uniformly are opposed to a group, they can mm. abuse their power recklessly and easily. That's true. Because I will say that despite the terrible things this movement did that Sheila orchestrated, and just to make it clear, totally not on their side. Yeah, no. Glad that they didn't succeed. But you could almost see the malice in the eyes of some of the opposition when they talked about these people yes. during their interviews. You could see the hate in their eyes. Like, ugh, glad they're not around the terrible people. True. Not all of them, but some of them. And can I just say, like, this particular movement, some of the things they did were bizarre and certainly the stuff sheila did and the, the leadership in terms of the illegal stuff and assassinations things were highly destructive but it didn't seem on its fundamentals that much crazier than a lot of other religions a lot of religions have crazy things not especially although i did read about their meditation process yeah called dynamic or active meditation right, or something right, right. that seemed really weird because i guess what they do is they spend some time yelling. Yeah, they have their four phases. Right. The first one, I think, is like shaking your body. Something. And then you have yelling. And then another one is you're just kind of hitting yourself or... Doing anything, I think. There's like this weird violence yeah, where just... you... like, And they showed it a little bit on that video that came in on, for the movie of the person that like snuck a camera in in India where you're just like mm -hmm. jumping around and swinging your arms and flailing and all of that, yeah. Yeah, and it's like violence against yourself or even others. Mm -hmm. And I think, because when I was reading about it, they said that there were accounts of sexual violence against others. It looked like it from the video they showed, yeah. And that part seemed, seemed uncool. It seemed bizarre, but I just need to stress that 
John is joining the cult. Yes, exactly. That, that's what this is all leading up to. Yeah, we're both joining in. No, but like these people are willing participants in this meditation practice, right? Mm, yeah. So I, I, I mean, granted, it might be bizarre. It might be destructive in some way. But if people are willing participants, it's hard to say that they're suffering because of it. Right. I think there are a lot of things in religious practice that are not great. Like you look at mm. celibacy as a common practice throughout the world. And celibacy is obviously counter to our nature, right? Yes. And you see a lot of things like certain religions have certain drugs that you ingest for certain religious experiences. Mm. You have certain punishments that involve cutting off people's hands and things if they do the wrong thing. Like you have circumcision right. in Judaism. That mm. seems weird and strange and invasive and mm. harmful. Mm. Like you're like a lot of people talk yeah. about with certain sex of islam where you have female genital mutilation right. all of those things or those really weird self-mutilation marches that people have you know like catholic followers yeah and you have the self-immolation where they have to like whip themselves and stuff to punish themselves yeah like all of those sorts of things seem just as strange and destructive as this weird meditation thing and granted the meditation thing seemed really weird and it seemed really wild mm. but I don't know. Like, these are adults participating in weird things. Yeah. I'm sure if every 3,000 years old, people would probably not think it were as weird. No. Still around that's today. true. Yeah. That's true. But yeah, it was pretty neat. It's a cool documentary. It was, pretty neat. it was very cool. Unfortunately, the movement lost. It's still going, yeah, we though. We didn't make I'm... that clear already. Yeah. I hear it kind of exists a little bit. That particular thing in Oregon's world. gone, but the, the movement's still yeah. petering on. Yeah. All right. Should we wrap this one up? Yeah. Okay. If anybody wants to give us any feedback, feel free to hit us up on Twitter at underscore WWOTS. Mike will respond to you there promptly, I'm sure. Yes. Immediately. I'm waiting for you. <laughs> Please. And you can find our show notes and links and references to anything that we talked about on the show at subjectradio.com slash WWOTS slash 024. And I will talk to you next week, Mike. Talk to you then. All right, man. Have a good one. You too. Later.
Did I misspell something? Yeah. Oh. Come on. 